You're listening to a sermon preached at Redeeming Life Church. It's a joy to see the kids involved. This morning I watched as a young woman came to play along with the guitar so she could uh, eventually help lead us in worship. I got to serve back in the AV booth for a little bit with both of my boys. Very, that's a very exciting thing. And then watching as volunteers are excited for the kids. It's a joy to be a church that is serious about the next generation. And I hope that you find that enjoyable too. Before I turn us to the word, we're going to be in Romans 4, verses 6 through 8. I want to let you know that all morning long, the devil has been whispering in my ear. He's been whispering, the sermon's too difficult, it's too technical. You just got to, you got to simplify it, you got to, you got to dumb it down for the, nobody's going to get it. Well, here's what I say to the devil, and I hope you'll join me. Let's punch the devil in the face this morning, and let's walk through a challenging sermon that I believe will change our souls in one way or another. Let's open the Bible, and let's look at God's Word. Romans chapter 4, we're going to be in verses 6 through 8. God's Word says this. Oh, by the way, if you're using that Pew Bible, it's on page 1000, if you're using one of the Bibles under the seat. Romans 6, excuse me, Romans 4, verses 6 through 8 says, Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the person to whom God credits righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless acts are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the person the Lord will never charge with sin. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at a text that on the surface seems like we could just read and keep reading and move on, Lord, speak to us in mighty ways. Move our minds to see you in a new way, to understand, to think logically and clearly about what is being said here in Paul's argument inspired by the Holy Spirit. Move our hearts to have the affection for you and what you're showing us. Lord, move our actions to be in line with our beliefs. God, open our eyes to see and open our ears to hear. And Lord, I pray that you would help me preach this sermon and communicate it in a way that is clear and flows in a way that is understandable, and Lord, that by your words and by the very word of God, we would be conformed to your will, to your heart, to your mind, and Lord, to who you would have us to be this morning. May we be a church that truly sees and does the word of God. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. So what we're doing, and this is where the challenge comes in, is we decided for right or wrong, to go through the book of Romans one pericope at a time. That's just a big fancy word for a self-contained little unit of scripture. And different publishers put their various pericope headings, which are not part of the Bible, at the beginning of those. Like in my printed Bible, it says, uh, David celebrated the same truth. That's a little heading. That's not part of the Bible. That's just what the publisher put there to give us the pericope heading. But what we need to remember is how complicated dividing up the little sections are in the book of Romans. Because Paul was a brilliant mind, and Paul is arguing this huge thought. What we're actually looking at here is... Paul, I have to read this. It's so complicated. We're looking at Paul's second illustration of his second subsection under his second subpoint, arguing the main point that the righteous shall live by faith. And that main point was stated all the way back in chapter 1, verse 17. 
So, so we have this giant argument, and this is only a little tiny piece of this great big argument. Now, does that mean I shouldn't preach a sermon using only verses 6 through 8 of chapter 4? No, of course not. We could very much preach the whole thing as one big argument, or I could preach these little verses. We just have to remember that these verses fit as a part of a much bigger argument. And if we lose the bigger argument, we lose the point of the verses. The bigger argument made back in 117 was the righteous shall live by faith. And so let us remember here, as we see this illustration that's being used to make all kinds of sub-argument with sub-argument, that being a Christian is a blessing. And this section is going to take us a little further. So we saw that we're saved apart from works last week. We saw his illustration was really pushing that point and making that point. The righteous shall live by faith apart from the works. And now we're seeing the exact same thing. And then Paul's pushing it just a hair further. And now he's saying we are blessed to be saved. He's going just a little, little more beyond the works argument to another nudge into how wonderful this is. We are blessed. Being saved is a blessing. God's gift of salvation by his grace is how God blesses us. And that's what I want us to see. So I pray that we not only see that, I, I pray that we feel it deeply, and I want to see what I can do to show you how these verses, which, which don't seem to be communicating the same thing the previous verses said, really do, and show us even more. So let's jump in. We're going to go through a, a little bit of a difficult argument, but I'm confident you can hang with me on this. I'm confident we can do this. Okay, so first of all, I want to reread the quote of David's psalm. It comes from Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. And this is what Paul is bringing in to make his point. Let's read that again, verses 7 and 8. Blessed are those whose lawless acts are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the person the Lord will never charge with sin. Now, on the surface, we say, well, how does that have anything to do with, with being declared righteous and, and being um, saved apart from works? Well, I always love how clear the Bible is, inspired by the Holy Spirit, when we have commentary in the New Testament. If you go back up and you look at the previous verse, it says, just as David also spoke of the blessings of the person to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Okay, no more argument. This is about a guy or a person who was credited as righteousness apart from anything that he did. That's what Paul said, inspired by the Holy Spirit, written right here, right here in the Word of God. That's the commentary on who the whole psalm is talking about. A guy who was saved by God apart from anything that he had done. Right? That's, that's the whole purpose, the whole subject of the guy that... David wrote about in the psalm, presumably himself, in the 32nd psalm. Okay, so, so Paul using that psalm has some kind of a significant purpose. Why would he go to that quote? Why would he, would he grab from there to show his argument that we are saved apart from works <clears throat> by God's grace? How does David's statement that we just read say that we are saved apart from works, that this person did this? Well, I think there's two reasons. First, I think that Paul, while he's only quoting the first two verses, is pointing us to and causing us to think about the whole 32nd Psalm. He's saying, think about the whole circumstance here. And here's where it gets really interesting. 
In the 32nd Psalm, verses 5 and 6, it says this. And listen, listen to this. I'm just going to read it to you unless you want to go there. But it says, Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not conceal my iniquity. And he's confessing, guilty. This is my sin. He goes on to say, I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, <clears throat> let everyone who is faithful pray to you immediately. This person that David is writing a song about, he said, yep, this is sin and that's sin. Yep, you're the lawgiver. Yep, you defined what sin is. Not me, I didn't define it. You did. The world didn't define it. God didn't. Yep, that's sin and that's sin and that's sin. And oh, I did that. I sinned. You're the lawgiver. I'm the sinner. That's where we're at, God. I'm professing there's a God. He gave the law. I disobeyed it. I'm guilty. That's what those verses are saying. You notice he didn't even have to ask for forgiveness? Did you notice that? I confess that you are God. You give the law. You say what is sin. I plead guilty that I did that. And then it went on to say, and you forgave me. His belief in the lawgiver was all it took to be saved. To confess that I'm not the one. His ways are higher than my ways. I'm going to surrender myself to him. That's what it is. He didn't have to do any works. He didn't have to, to appease God in one way or another to get all the checklist right. He just had to confess there is a God. He's a mighty lawgiver. This man's not God. This man violated God's law. According to that psalm, that's all it is. That's it. And then David says this. He says, let everyone who is faithful pray to you immediately. The assumption, I think, in the psalm is that you too, the reader also, us, we, should also do the same thing that this person did. That's how it works. It wasn't a special occasion for the person. This is the normal, nominative way that all people would find forgiveness. And he's saying, look, you also broke the law. You're also not God. Therefore, you also should pray so that you would be like this blessed man that's being sung about in the 32nd Psalm. That's how it works. Interestingly, we read about the same exact thing in the New Testament. 1 John 19 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Psalm 32, 1 John, no works, no list, no penance, no getting it just right, no exact right secret information you got to know. None of that. None of it. Grace. Salvation that comes to you apart from any works you can do. And then David also said, if you need to do this, you should do it immediately. What kind of pastor would I be if I just skimmed right over a verse like that? I mean, that's a verse for a pastor, right? If you don't know this Jesus, and if you haven't professed that he is God and you are not, and he's a lawgiver, if you've not put your trust in him and your belief in him and said, I'm guilty, but he'll forgive, I believe his promises, David is saying, you better pray, and you better do it when? Immediately. So if that's you, today's your day. Today's your day, and I pray that it is. I hope that it is. Because then you too can be this blessed one who can sing for joy 
resting in the very salvation of God. And furthermore, do not tell me, and people try to tell me this, but I, do not tell me there is a one way to get saved in the Old Testament and a different way to get saved in the New Testament. I'm pretty sure that Psalm 32.5 that I just read and 1 John 1.19 pretty much look the same. There is not two different ways. Faith. Grace. No works. The whole of the Bible preaches the same thing, doesn't it? Old Testament, New Testament. We are saved by grace. So the righteousness of God would be given or imputed to us that we would have Christ's righteousness so that no one could boast. That's how David did it. That's how he's calling all who would read his psalm to do it. But there's also another reason why I think that, that David's words here are saying we are saved apart from works as a free gift of God. There's another reason, and this is where it's going to get a little technical, but I think if you just hang with me here, I think the payoff will be worth it. It's how David quoted, I mean, excuse me, it's how Paul quoted David. It's how he's using these words that I think are so significant. David is showing us that there is a blessing. And not just a blessing like, oh, hey, found a dollar in the parking lot today, I'm blessed. But like a blessing, like a significant, important blessing. So here we go. Psalm 32, 1 and 2, they use a Hebrew word, which is asher, or if you're Asher, my son, you realize, oh, that's the root of my name, Asher, and it means happy or blessed. And in the range of meaning, it can mean both. It could be, as some translators go in that psalm, happy is the person. Blessed is the person. It's used there twice, and it can go both ways in the psalm. It, it, we're kind of up in the air to figure out what it is. But then along comes the Septuagint. We've been talking about that a lot. If you remember, the Septuagint is these 70 scholars who took the Hebrew Bible and translated it into Koine Greek or the Greek so that the people all around that part of the world could read the Bible. It was completed in 132 B.C. It's likely the disciples read it. It's likely that Jesus read it because they quote from that version. But if... Paul is not quoting from the Septuagint here, then he himself felt the need to translate the Hebrew word because he was writing in Greek. So he translated this Asher word to Markarois. Markarois is the Greek word that we find in both places, either Paul's translation or the Septuagint. He quoted from the Septuagint instead of from the Hebrew. You know what that word means? Happy or blessed. It's a very convenient word. Not every word we translate translates so cleanly, but that one translates very cleanly. It can kind of go both ways. So do I think it could be happy? No, I don't. I don't. I think this is one option here. Here's why. If you look back in your Bible, if you look at verse 6, Paul says, David also speaks of the blessing. And he goes on to talk about this blessing. It'd be a little weird if he was saying, David also speaks of some happiness. All right, he's talking about something, a thing. Right? It's strange to say it the other way. And then if that's not enough, if you go to the verse after, which is going to be next week, if you look at verse 9, it says, Is this blessing only for the circumcised? He's referring to the two uses of the word blessing he just said, plus the one in verse 6. That would be very strange if he said, Is this happiness for circumcised people? 
That doesn't even make sense, does it? He's talking about a real significant thing. He's talking about a blessing. And then his answer points us to Abraham, and he's quoting Genesis 15, 6 again, and he says, Abraham believed the Lord. This is, in, this is next week in the next section of the text. Uh, he says, Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. That's talking about a blessing, not happiness. Abraham just wasn't happy. He was blessed. So can that word mean happy? In other circumstances, but the context says clearly it means blessing. Paul is talking about a blessing. And I'm going to take it a step further here. Well, he doesn't say it right here. Paul is talking about a blessing called the blessing of Abraham. The blessing of Abraham. Well, what's the blessing of Abraham? Well, let me read from Galatians 3, verses 13 and 14. Also, Paul. Paul says this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us because it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Now hear this. The purpose was, this is still Paul, the purpose was that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles by Christ Jesus so that we, he's assuming we, not Jewish people, we could receive the promised spirit through faith. Did you hear that? Christ became the curse so we could receive the what? The blessing of Abraham. Okay, in other words, Christ became sin so we could receive righteousness. In other words, still, Christ traded our sin for his salvation. And his salvation is referred to all the way back in Genesis as the blessing of Abraham. The blessing. Genesis 18, 18 says, Abraham is to become a great and powerful nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. How? Through Jesus Christ and the blessing of Abraham. Genesis twenty-two eighteen. God said to Abraham, All the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring because you have obeyed my command. The blessing that he's talking about is salvation made possible by faith in God apart from works. Now, some of you might go, well, I don't, I don't know. Okay, I have one more for you. <clears throat> Galatians, back to Galatians 3, now verses 7 through 9. You know then that those who have faith, these are Abraham's sons. Hmm, interesting. Now, the scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and proclaimed the gospel ahead of time to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed through you. Consequently, those who have faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. You see it? This blessing is the blessing of salvation. This blessing of Abraham, because to justify, as I just read, means to save. So this is saying that those who have faith are justified or saved. It is also saying that those who have faith are blessed. Did you hear how it used them interchangeably? To be saved is to be blessed. To be justified is to be saved. 
To be justified is to be blessed. It's also saying that this gospel, it says, this good news of salvation by faith was proclaimed ahead of time when? To Abraham. When he said, you will bless all the nations. Abraham was blessed. Abraham learned even then the righteous shall live by faith. That's the blessing. That's why Paul's pulling from this. The blessing of Abraham and the blessing that David is singing about, the same blessing, is the blessing of salvation apart from anything that we can do. That's Paul's argument. Now, think about this for a minute. Using the conservative dating system, which I believe is right and true, that the Bible gives us good dates that we should adhere to rather than the world, that dating system puts Abraham's example somewhere around 2000 B.C. David then comes along and he writes Psalm 32 around 950 B.C. That's about a thousand years after Abraham's example of salvation by faith apart from works. And then Paul comes along and he writes this letter to the Romans somewhere I'm thinking between 50 and 60 A.D. about a thousand years after David's psalm. And all three of them are saying that we are saved apart from works. And now here I am preaching all of this nearly 2,000 years after Paul wrote it to the Romans. 3,000 years after David sung it in a psalm. 4,000 years after Abraham was told to be the blessing to all the nations bringing salvation through Jesus Christ. 4,000 years later, the message is still true. 4,000 years of preaching the righteous shall live by faith is still true. And should, and I hope this isn't the case, Jesus take 4,000 more years to come back, it'll still be just as true then as it is right now as it was when the promise was made to Abraham. The righteous shall live by faith apart from works so that no one may boast. Do you see the argument? Isn't it amazing? We are blessed. To be saved is to be blessed. Salvation is the blessing of God that we get to receive. Not by work, but by the work Jesus Christ did. So we can only boast in his works. We only boast in him, so we only praise him, so we only worship him. That's what's happening here. Martin Luther was a 16th century Roman Catholic monk. And his picture hangs on the wall among many other very faithful men in my study. This man, while he was in the, while he was in the monastery, while he was, he was monking it out, he worked and he worked and he worked and he worked to relieve the burden he knew he had on him that he would be judged under the wrath of sin and found guilty and damned. He did all the stuff. He went on the pilgrimage trip to Rome. He climbed the holy stairs on his knees where you stop at every step and you pray, you pray, you pray. He paid for an indulgence. He went to all the relics, which was some of the things he could do. He gave his time, all of his time. He served diligently. He gave up every possession he owned. He prayed unendingly. 
He went to the confession booth for hours at a session every day. None of it would relieve his guilt, and he knew it. He was in agony over it. And then, I'm convinced, the guy in charge of the monastery was super annoyed by Luther. Um, but I know it was a God's sovereignty that Luther would be sent away from the monastery to go preach, or excuse me, to profess, to be a lecturer and a professor in the school. So I'm pretty sure it went something like this. This guy's really annoying me. Please, can we send him away? Oh, there's an opening as a professor. Hey, Martin, I think you're called to be a professor. He leaves, and he's, he's working at the school. Right? And this guy over here is like, glad that's over. Little did he know what was coming. (laughs) Martin Luther, while at the school, now has access to the scriptures in their original languages, in the Hebrew and in the Greek. And he's encouraged to be reading and studying for himself, not trusting what he's hearing from others and the preaching of others and the writing about the Bible. But now he's actually in the Bible, reading the Bible for himself. And then in 1515, he's set to the task of lecturing through the book of Romans. And he comes to this verse in Romans 1:17: The righteous shall live by faith. And it blew up his whole universe. He was radically saved in that moment. Immediately felt the relief that none of his works could measure up. What he knew was true. He couldn't do it. And the Bible said so. And God radically saved Martin Luther's life in that moment. It radically changed everything when he read God's word. And then that changed life, Martin Luther went on to change the world because of this one verse. Because of God's truth that we are saved apart from our works. There's nothing we can do. The righteous shall live by faith. Martin Luther was saved by the blessing of Abraham. David was saved by the blessing of Abraham. Paul was saved by the blessing of Abraham. And if you are a believer here professing faith Apart from anything you can do, you are saved by the blessing of Abraham. We don't call it the blessing of Abraham much, do we? In fact, how many of you really ever even heard it called that? We just don't call it that. Why not? Let's say that Abraham were to walk through the door, which in and of itself would be amazing. Let's say Abraham were to walk through the door and we were to ask him, Hey, Abraham, you mind if we call you Abe? No. Okay, Abraham. (laughs) Why don't we call it the blessing of Abraham? He's going to say, it's not about me. It's about Jesus Christ. So so we shouldn't call it the blessing? No, he's going to say. Then he's also going to have a bunch of choice words for me because last week I called his wife a bag of bones. And I'm going to deserve all those words that he has to say to me. And then he's going to go on his way. We don't call this the blessing of Abraham because it's the blessing of God through Jesus Christ. Abraham just happened to be the one that got to hear about it. And we get to keep praising Jesus for it. And so while we can see this go all the way back, all the way back to Abraham's life, all the way through 20 centuries, we know it is not a blessing from Abraham. We know it was a blessing for Abraham. And it's a blessing for you and for me and for all who are saved. Our salvation is a blessing from God because of the perfect saving work of Jesus Christ. To be nailed to a sinner's cross. Cursed is anyone hung on a tree, the word says. Cursed Jesus was. 
to have all of our sin and the very curse of the earth placed upon Jesus Christ that he would pay the punishment for that that we deserved, that he'd be crushed. The cross did not kill Jesus. So everybody goes, oh, it's a horrific death and this thing and that thing and here's the medical reasons why and your lungs fill up and this happens and that happens. And then Pilate was so surprised he died so quickly. I won't know why he was beat within an inch of his life before they crucified him. But it wasn't the cross that killed him. In fact, if the wrath of God was not put upon the Son of God, the cross would not have been able to touch him. It was the wrath of God that should have killed us that killed Jesus. That's what killed him. The crushing weight of the punishment of God for your sins and my sins. And then his dead human body was laid in a grave. And then by the very power of God to show that he has death, or excuse me, he has power over death, Jesus was raised. And he was given a resurrection body, the first, which all those who believe in him will have as well. And he spent 40 days with his disciples, preparing them to take the message of the blessing of Abraham to the world. And he commissioned them to do so. We call it the Great Commission. You could call it the blessing of Abraham. And then he ascended to heaven. Because he did all that, salvation is a blessing made available to us. Salvation is a blessing. And what a blessing. What a blessing. That should just blow our minds every day. We should walk around and go, can you believe I get to enjoy this blessing? Wow. What a blessing. Do you see your salvation as a blessing? Like, do you really see this blessing in your life? What would others observe? Let's just think about this for a minute. What would... What would others see about you if they were to observe your life? Would they say, yes, Brian sees his salvation as a blessing. And so does Sally and Bob and Harry and all the other fake names I'm making up. What would they say about you? Wow. Really sees, she really sees this amazing blessing, undeserved, gifted to him or to her, to you by God. What would they see? What would others say about your lifestyle? Going off my notes here for a minute. I cut this, but I have a couple minutes, so I'm bringing it back. I was thinking about my life compared to Martin Luther, which is a really dangerous thing to do. I thought, man, this guy read one verse of the Bible, was saved started preaching and teaching in ways that people said there's something radically different about that guy. His teaching has clearly changed. I don't know if this stuff lines up with the stuff we're used to. Holy smokes. He started making compelling, convincing arguments using nothing but the word of God. All of his previous work, he said that was pointless. He started writing books ferociously. He started writing quite a few things. In fact, he wrote 95 reasons to argue why the Pope was wrong, the Catholic Church was wrong, and he said, we need to look at it against the Bible. The printing press had been invented not too long ago, and someone said, hey, we should print this. So it was like an early let's go viral situation, and everybody had read this, and everybody went, man, this guy just picked a fight with the Pope, the most powerful man on earth. Good luck, dude. 
They drug him in. They arrested him. He had problems. They had all sorts of stuff going on. The whole world was getting turned upside down. They drag him in. They put him before a tribunal of people who have the authority if determined that they could end his life. And they said, all you got to do, Martin, is you just got to recant. You got to show me. You know, you got to say you don't believe this anymore. And he basically challenged him. He said, look, take all my books that I've written, and you show me where what I said does not line up with the Bible, and I'll, I'll recant that. But I can only stand on the word of God. And all that got ignited by this little fuse. The righteous shall live by faith. Then they hauled him out. And he was going to be hauled somewhere else and kidnapped and captured, but this other person grabbed him uh, in the dark of night and hauled him up to a castle and said, we need a Bible in our own language, and we're going to save you, and this is going to be great. And he translated the New Testament into German, and he started teaching, and he started preaching, and the world was radically changed. And today I'm standing in a pulpit reading a Bible because of the legacy of Martin Luther and thousands of others. Over a thousand, well, not 500 years, have been able to do the same. Why? Because salvation is a blessing. Because the promise that was made to Abraham was also made to Martin Luther. And is also made to you. Now, I ask myself the question. If I really lived like I saw this as a blessing and I really believed it, and all this world seemed of naught, and the glory of God was my everything, would my life look like Martin Luther's? I think so. Which, what does that say about me? But here's what I realized. The day before Martin Luther read Romans 1.17, he looked just like you and me, going about his business, doing his thing, which leads me to believe that maybe even in this room, maybe in the young men in the sound booth, the kids back in the, in the room back there, maybe even one of you is just one day away from having that radical moment in your life and then turning the world upside down, changing the world because of your God-changed life, what would it look like if we really believed this blessing? What would the world look like if we really believed this blessing? That we went to them and told them the blessing of Abraham, the salvation of Jesus Christ, it's a blessing for you too because the righteous shall live by faith. I don't know. It's a dangerous question. I kind of want to see what might happen. I don't know about you, but I want to see. Back to my notes. Paul shows us what the person looks like. Now, Paul doesn't show us a guy who looks like Luther. Okay, let's be really fair about that. Excuse me, David. David shows us what the guy looks like. He says it in Psalm 32:11. It was our call to worship this morning. Most of us probably don't even remember the call to worship. Most of us probably didn't even consider what David was saying the blessed man and the blessed woman look like when the world looks on and sees us. Listen to this conclusion to the 32nd Psalm, verse 11. It says, Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, you righteous ones. If that's you, this is talking to you. Are you glad? And this is shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Are you glad in the Lord? Is that where you find your joy? Is that where you find your happiness? Because the word could go both ways. 
Does the joy of the Lord brighten your soul? Do you rejoice? I mean, do you rejoice? Now, that looks like a lot of things. That can look like all sorts of acts of worship. But rejoice and worship are really one and the same here. Do you worship? Do you worship in your time, in your talent, in your treasure, in what you're doing, in how you connect with others, and in the most obvious way, even in your singing? I can't even imagine what singing hymns with Martin Luther, who wrote hymns, by the way, must have looked like. The man who turned the world upside down probably sang his guts out. I'm guessing he was off key too, but I don't know. That's just me. makes myself feel better about me. I can't imagine what a man like that must have sounded like standing next to singing. But isn't that what we should all sound like? You know, every Sunday morning we should come in here and blow the roof off this place. To the rejoicing glory that we give to God. Does your heart and soul want to shout for joy because of your love of Jesus? Because he blessed you. One of my favorite songs, we only sing it around Christmas time, and I'm not sure if it's a Christmas song or we could sing it anytime. One of my favorite songs makes this point. It's a silly song in so many ways, but it's so powerful. Go tell it on the mountain. Right? Go stand on the mountaintop and shout your guts out to the world. Jesus Christ has come. That the blessing of Abraham is available to all. The salvation is a blessing And it's available because Christ died for you and for me. And all who would believe it and just profess, I'm not the lawgiver, you are. I can't do it by works. You did it by your works. He says he will forgive. Christians, if you are saved, and I pray that you are, and if you're not, let's talk. If you are, you're blessed. It is my prayer, and it has been my prayer this morning, and it will continue to be my prayer, that this blessing radically changes each and every one of us, and therefore radically changes Redeeming Life Church, and therefore radically changes Bountiful and the surrounding communities we've all driven in here from, and therefore radically changes our state and therefore radically changes our nation, and therefore radically changes the nations that neighbor us, and therefore radically changes the world. Martin Luther tells me it's possible God still works in the same ways. Maybe it's possible starting right here this morning. The righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the blessing that we don't deserve. Thank you, for, thank you that you proclaim the gospel all the way back through Abraham and all the way even to today. Thank you that we can participate in such a wonderful blessing simply because you open our eyes and ears and that we would believe, not because we work or toil or labor, simply because of what you've done, so that you get all the glory and all the credit so that no one may boast. God, I'm asking, I'm praying that after we receive that blessing, you would just pour your spirit into us and we would be open vessels recipient of it and it would radically change the world. We wouldn't be having conversations about the next election, but we'd be having conversations about the gospel going around the globe, starting with our neighbor right at the end of our driveway. Lord, I know this is true. 
Lord, I know that you've made this promise to Abraham that the nations will be blessed by Jesus Christ. I'm asking, Lord, that you would help us to carry out the task you've given us. And I'm asking, Lord, that you would bless the nations by the blessing that Jesus Christ brings, that we would see a remarkable awakening of souls, dead bones coming to life, radically moved to know you and to love you and to praise you and to shout for joy and to rejoice. God, take out all the places of doubt in our lives. Take out all the places that cause us not to be shouting for joy. Lord, bless us abundantly. And Lord, as we respond now in worship, may it bring you great joy. Lord, let it also bring us great joy as we know you have blessed us so abundantly apart from anything that we could do. It's in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. We'd love to have you as our guest. For more information, visit redeeminglifeutah.org.